If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Acts. We are looking uh, at a study entitled Acts, the Church on Fire. And we're going to be looking in just a few moments there at Acts 13.1. Acts 13 is a hinge moment in history, uh, in church history, but also in history at large. It is a turning point for the New Testament church. As followers of Jesus, they had been given a commission by Jesus. Uh, He had told them back in Acts 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Empowered by the Spirit, these followers of Jesus, this new church, were to be witnesses, first in Jerusalem, which they were very effective in doing, even in the face of stiff opposition. They saw tremendous amounts of growth in this early church from the day of Pentecost on. And then in Judea and Samaria, as evidenced by people like Philip who went into all Samaria preaching and seeing tremendous results. And also Peter himself who was called upon by Cornelius, a Roman centurion. And he called upon him and the Holy Spirit fell upon Cornelius' house. And so we see in Jerusalem a tremendous witnessing that's been going on and also in Judea and Samaria. And now in chapter 13, we are entering into phase three. We're entering into the new phase, a phase that we ourselves are still currently in. We are still in this phase of taking the gospel and being his witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so we read in Acts 13, verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now let's just stop right there and clear up something here. There are two cities called Antioch in this chapter in the book of Acts. The first one we've just read about in verse 1, it is Antioch that is north of Israel in Syria. And the second is mentioned later in verse 14, and it is in Pisidia, which is Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. And Paul is going to end up there with Barnabas. That is where he's going to end up towards the end of this chapter So don't get confused when you see these two names, uh, like having Dallas, Texas, and Dallas, Georgia. One is bigger than the other, but at any rate, I'm I'm trying not to get sidetracked. Uh, The Antioch church in Syria is a pivotal church. It is significant. It has sprung up after Stephen's death. And the subsequent persecution that happened in Jerusalem that caused a scattering of all believers into these areas of Judea, Samaria, including up into Antioch. And now, some 12 to 16 years later, 
so that you have a time frame. From the time when, when Stephen was murdered and it forced so many out, it's now been 12, somewhere between 12 and 16 years later. And we read this in Acts 13 as to what's happening. Now I want you to think about what was happening in your life 15 years ago. How is it different today than what it was 15 years ago? Now, when I think about this in reality, I wonder how they had changed. The believers, those following Jesus, many who have seen, had seen Jesus with their own eyes, the resurrected Lord, and had seen him ascend into heaven and had received the Holy Spirit and were moved upon dramatically, and they had seen so much power revealed and miracles. And now, some 15 years later, what's happening? Well, I'm happy to report in this church, a lot's happening. God is still at work in a massive way. This, this church in Antioch in Syria is a hub of gospel activity. It is an apostolic center, and we see based off of what's happening here in chapter 13. We're introduced to five of its leaders who are identified as prophets and teachers. And we don't know if they were all prophets and teachers. Or we don't know if some of them were prophets and others were teachers. Some people think that three, the first three were prophets and the last two were teachers. And I don't really know if any of that matters. <laughs> Except to say and to show that the Spirit of God will always have diversity in his body. The Spirit of God designed us to be a diverse people with diverse gifting and diverse backgrounds, and we see it right here in the church of Antioch. Acts 13 is speaking to the diversity of gifting, and on multiple occasions, this guy we are calling Saul currently, who will later be known as Paul, had a lot of say about that. Like, like what he said to the Roman church, you can see it on the screen. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as on one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually, members one of another. Verse 6 says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads, with zeal. And the one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. Something else noteworthy about this church in Antioch was that it was an ethnically and culturally diverse community, just as the city of Antioch was. And we also see this diversity even in these five leaders. First, we have Barnabas. We've heard about him before. His name is actually Joseph. He is a Levite from Cyprus, which is... Interesting that that's where Paul and Barnabas first go. He is described earlier in the book of Acts as a good man 
who is full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And he was nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of exhortation or son of encouragement. He was a very generous man. Remember, he sold a field and gave the offering to the apostles to care for the poor among them. And you'll also remember that he was an advocate on behalf of this guy named Saul who had been persecuting the church. But Barnabas comes to his defense and he, he actually advocates for him with the skeptical leaders of the Jerusalem church. And of course, Saul, the one that he advocated for, is the last person, the last leader of this list of five in Antioch. Then we have Simeon. Simeon uh, was also called Niger, which is Latin for dark or black. And so it suggests that he had a dark complexion, most likely from North Africa. But Niger was also a very highly respected and common Roman name, which meant this one Simeon or Simon could very well be Jewish, but also a Roman citizen. Some have speculated that this is the very person, also known as Simon the Cyrene, who was compelled by Roman soldiers to carry Jesus' cross to his crucifixion. There's no proof of that, but it is an interesting thought when you think about it. Then the next guy is named Lucius, also of Cyrene, which is in the area of Libya, in northern Africa. Most definitely he was a Gentile, but he was possibly one of the leaders that founded the church in Antioch. And finally, we have this guy named Manan, who is described as a lifelong friend to an evil man, a man named Herod, the Tetrarch. A more precise translation of what it meant to be a lifelong friend was that they were brought up together. In some cases, people think that they were foster brothers or that they had the same wet nurse. Whatever the case may be, Manan knew Herod very, very well. Now, we're not talking about the Herod from chapter 12 that we looked at two weeks ago, the one who executed James by cutting off his head, who imprisoned Peter, you remember, and, and the, the angel brought Peter out, and then later, this Herod, who is actually Agrippa, Herod Agrippa, he, he actually starts acting like he's God, and God strikes him down. The angel of the Lord strikes him down, the Bible says that worms just started eating him. That was really a fun story. All the kids are downstairs, so they don't get to enjoy that one. No, that's not the, the Herod that Manan knew. The Herod he knew was Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch. He was the one who reigned in Galilee from, Galilee from about 4 BC until about 39 AD. And he was the one who beheaded John the Baptist and also interrogated Jesus before his crucifixion. Luke pays special attention to this particular Herod, the Tetrarch, um, in his gospel. And it is speculated that Manan was actually his insider on the story. He was his informant, giving him background on who Herod really was. And why not? Who better to give that kind of insight than someone who grew up with you? But even more interesting to me about these two, Manan and Herod, is the divergent paths on which they traveled, even though they had been brought up together. One turned into a murderous king, 
The other, a leader in the church. So you have these five particular leaders, and I think we're given these names, and we're given a little bit of their background on purpose to help us see that God likes diversity. He created us as such. You have both Jew and Gentile. You have a Levite from Cyprus. You have a Pharisee of Pharisees from Tarsus. You have two Africans and a lifelong friend of King Herod the Tetrarch. Eclectic, diverse, and beautiful. One of the things God is doing in our church that I am so grateful for is the diversity that he is helping us grow into. I'm an old white guy. I don't know if y'all have noticed that. But it is my heart to see our church community represent the area in which we live, which is the most culturally diverse county in the southeastern part of the United States. And by God's grace, we are seeing more and more people come to faith or come into community that don't look like me. And I am so grateful. I'm not interested in pushing some sort of agenda. I'm interested in reflecting some sort of heaven. And I believe that this does just that because heaven is going to reflect every nation, every race, every tribe, every tongue, every ethnicity and background will be together worshiping around the throne. Look back at Acts 13. We've only made it through verse 1. You're getting nervous right now, aren't you? Could you turn the air down a little bit? It is really warm in here. Thank you. Uh, verse 2. Y'all may not be warm, but I am. So, <clears throat> while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Their posture of worshiping as a community, as leaders and as a church, worshiping the Lord and fasting and prayer is a rhythm of their communal life. It's not just a one-time event for them. It is something that is ongoing. Before the Spirit tells them to set aside Barnabas and Saul for the work that he has called them, they're worshiping the Lord. And they're fasting. And I don't think they're doing that programmatically. I think they're doing that relationally because this is what we do. We worship God who has saved us. And we fast and pray so that we can hear his voice clearly and obey him. But not only are they doing that before the Spirit speaks, even after the Spirit speaks and tells them what to do, they're still fasting and praying, even as they lay hands on these two and send them off. Worship, fasting, prayer. These are all essential pieces for us as believers in Jesus. They were essential for them and they are essential for us. They're essential for us. Good, there's a few more. They are essential for us. Thank you, Lord. Prayer, worship, fasting, hearing his voice. They were people who sought God's presence. They wanted to be in his presence at all time. And we as a community 
must also be that kind. I, I was impacted by a post that Shay Sweeney, and their family is not here today, they're uh, taking a weekend, and, but Shay made a post on Instagram, and I've really been enjoying to see some of our young people and the way their faith has been growing and the witness that they've been having. And She made this post, and it read this. This generation doesn't need someone who is good at preaching. It needs someone who models being in the presence of God. And I agree. Now, I realize the irony of me quoting this in a sermon. (laughs) But it's true. And you see, the only reason I preach is that we might be in God's presence even more. That's the purpose of feeding the congregation, the flock, feeding people the word of God, is so that we might more fully be in his presence. That's what this generation needs. Not more fancy preachers but more people who will seek God diligently, worshiping him fully and fasting and praying that they might hear his voice. But don't forget what the Spirit said in this moment. He said, set apart for me, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And that is what they did. It's just snap, snap, snap. And they set them apart, and verse 3 says they, they were sent off, and then verse 4 says, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. The church in Antioch had sent them off, but it was the Holy Spirit who sent them out. Do you hear me? We can do all the sanctioning and laying on hands, but if the Holy Spirit hasn't sent you out, it's probably not going to go so well. The Holy Spirit had called them. He said, set aside Barnabas and Saul to the work that I have called them to. And then it says, the Spirit sent them out. The Holy Spirit's the one who does the calling. The Holy Spirit is the one who does the sending. And he invites us in to agree with what he's doing. This is a a reality that we need to understand. And we, I know in my ministry, I've talked a lot about it. And I think probably some people may get tired of me talking about being a missional people. But I just think it is so central to what God's called us to do. And it comes out of this reality. That God is a sending God. God is a sending God. From his sending of Abraham in the book of Genesis all the way to sending an angel at the end of Revelation, it's clear that God sends. He sends. Like the story of Isaiah. You know this story. It's one of my favorites, Isaiah 6. Isaiah is drawn into the presence of God in a moment of grief. It says, when the year that King Uzziah died. And Isaiah is drawn up, whether in the spirit or physically, I don't know, but he is drawn up into a place where he sees the Lord high and lifted up. The Bible says the train, his train, it filled the temple. And there were angelic beings that were declaring loudly, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
over and over and over again. And Isaiah is brought into this place and he thinks, I need to die. I don't belong here. I'm undone. I'm a mess. And what Isaiah is thinking to himself is, I don't belong here because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I come from a people of unclean lips. We don't say the right things because we don't believe the right things because we don't feel the right things. We're filthy. The Bible says that an angel gathered some tongs and gathered a coal from the altar and came and touched his lips so as to cleanse him of his unrighteousness and to atone for his sin. Now that would be a great place for that story to end. What an amazing experience that I'm undone. I see the majesty of God and he takes care of my sin and now I have fellowship with him again. But we know that's not where it stops. It goes on. Here's what it says in Isaiah 6, 8, right after that happens. And I heard a voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am send me. God is an ascending God and he not only sent Jesus to atone for our sins, he intends for us to go because we're atoned. He, he intends for us to take the message that we have received from God because he has done so much for us and go into places where they need to hear it as well. Evidence of God being ascending God is probably most concentrated in the Gospel of John. Do you know that there are over 60 times that the word send or sent is used in John's Gospel? And most every time with respect to God being a sender and Jesus being the one he sent. But maybe it culminates in one of the most powerful verses in John 20 verse 21 when he says this, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. God is ascending God. He sent his son. They sent the spirit. And they are sending us. Since God believes in sending, he has to have for himself a people who will go. When Isaiah said, here I am send me. That needs to be our heart. It needs to be the heart that we are always having that, yes, Lord, I'm ready. You've done so much for me. I'm ready to go. We're not meant to call people as the church out of the world into some sort of safe religious enclave. We are called and sent into the world to announce his kingdom and his reign, and his sovereignty, and his lordship. And that's why as a church, we are constantly reminding ourselves that it is not simply about us. It is about going and obeying him out there. We're reminding ourselves of this, and we are trying to help as a community in our need, in our focus of worshiping the Lord and praying and fasting, so that as he says go, we will respond. I thought about this a few weeks ago when we prayed for Jamie, who right now 
with a dear friend of ours, Chuck Bass, is in Nigeria. And it's been there for a week. We sent him off and prayed for him. You remember that two weeks ago. And then last Sunday, while we were at the conference, we had opportunity to gather around them and pray because God is doing something in Nigeria where we have four boy with the ball teams that are going on. They are growing and multiplying with love your city efforts in those areas, rural areas, as well as uh, municipal areas. And so I thought about them. They're there. They've gone because they heard the call. And I think about it with Anna, who will be in Nicaragua in a few weeks. And then also in Lebanon later this fall with Chuck and Cherie to look and see if that might be good placement for new Boy with Ball efforts. And I thought about it with Sam Bretzman and Jamie, who will be in Kenya and Ethiopia in December. You see, we're still a going church. And whatever efforts that we have as a community, we want to make our obedience to his call in the affirmative. Yes, Lord, here we are. Send us. But it's not just for the select few. We are all followers of Jesus. And as such, we're called and we're sent. You may not be called to go to another country. You may be called to go to your neighbor You might be called to go next door. You might be called to go down the street or to your own relatives or to your own children or to your own coworkers. Like those that every Saturday go to Sarah Court and work and love in a community or those many of you that are going down on Tuesday nights and teaching ESL classes for people that need to learn English or maybe those that are in ministry as an educator or as a medical worker, or as a business leader, or as a stay-at-home mom raising kids, or as a student in a classroom. How would your life look different today if you recognized and lived in the reality that God has called you and sent you out? It might not change your environment, but it might change you. You might realize that as you're getting ready to head out for your day, to go to what you normally would go, that it's not just something you have to do, it's something God has called you to do. And it is something that God is sending you to do. Just an awareness that God is at work in that situation, in that workplace, in that relationship, in that neighbor, wherever you are, that God is at work and he has called you and he is sending you into that place. How might it be different that's the question we need to be asking because why God is ascending God and he is always sending it might teach us to pray and seek his face in ways that we never knew how listen our desire is to be God's people people of his presence where we do worship and prayer and fasting more than we do strategizing and planning or complaining. I firmly believe that the purposes of God are born out of the fellowship that we have with him and also the fellowship we have with one another. But that as those purposes come forth, that the worship of him and the lifting up his name and hearing his voice will propel us because God is ascending God. Do you hear his voice today? 
Do you hear him saying from the throne of heaven, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? I pray that our answer will always be, here am I. Lord, send me. Donna's going to come. We're going to pray for you this morning and ask the Lord to bless what he is doing and saying even now. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. My father is always at work, even to this very day, and therefore I am working. The son, the sons, can do nothing by ourselves. We can only do what we see the father doing. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. But instead, I have called you friends for everything I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. And so they asked, what must we do to do the work that God requires? And Jesus answered, believe in the one he has sent. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes will have eternal life. And since we know this, we try to persuade others. As Christ's love compels us, We regard no one from a worldly point of view. For if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. This all comes from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and then gave us this ministry of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, As though God were making his personal appeal through us, we implore you to be reconciled. We implore you to become reconcilers. Hmm. (laughs) He is at work, even to this day, and therefore we are working. And it doesn't matter where we are in our journey with him. If we are with him in any degree... We are working, and the work that we are doing is believing and proclaiming. Yes. And we can't do one without the other. That's right. If we genuinely believe, we will proclaim. That's right. Because his love compels us. So my prayer for us this morning is that we be compelled. Mm -hmm. Yes. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for explaining your call again and again, for showing us that you are at work even to this day, and that because you continue to work, we work. Mm -hmm. We work not as servants, but as friends. That's right. In the mission together, 
enjoying all the privilege of communion and community and all of the responsibilities of being ambassadors. Yes, Lord. Father, quicken our hearts with a sense of urgency. Yes, Jesus. By the Holy Spirit, refresh our prayers for those who are hurting and lost and isolated. Yes. Father, compel us by the power of your love shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Yes, Lord. That we would truly be reconcilers. We thank you, Jesus, that you came when the Father sent you. We thank you, Spirit, that you came when you were sent. We only imagine those people that are out there that one day will thank us because we chose to believe God, take him at his word, and go and be his witnesses in our Jerusalem, in our Judea and Samaria, and even to the uttermost parts of the earth or the uttermost parts of our neighborhood. Lord, there are those that you have called to be a part of your family. And you have enlisted us, not as Donna has said, as servants merely, but as children sons and daughters, those that have been adopted into the family to go out into the highways and byways and declare you too can be a part of the family of God. I pray, Lord, that the burden that you have for our neighbor or for our coworker or for uh, our relative or for a situation that's around us in our sphere of influence, the burden that you have for them would be implanted into our hearts, that we would see it the way you do and we would feel it the way that you do and we would be motivated in it the way that you are. Lord, may your spirit that had a work for Saul and Barnabas May the Spirit of God speak to us in our moments of worship and prayer and fasting. May we know the call of God and may we know that he has truly sent us as well because you're ascending God. And I pray that us, that we as a community, that this church family, along with the efforts of a missional type school and an apostolic team that's a nonprofit, that all is working together like a abbey type church that you would use lord our feeble efforts and bless them with much fruit in jesus name the people would come into your kingdom lord and we could rejoice with the angels in heaven that sing over the one that was lost and now they are found lord may your heart beat in us may what motivates you motivate us i pray and may we truly be those who are about our father's business. Thank you for what you're saying and doing in our midst in these days. I thank you, God, for the new people that have been coming around and into your kingdom that have been 
finding purpose in their life and meeting Jesus and surrendering their lives to you and following after you and being discipled and baptized. Lord, send us more. Let it happen more, Lord, not just in a few, but in many. We commit our ways to you now, Lord, and what you're doing in our midst and beyond. Amen.